Little Wing is now streaming on Paramount Plus. I'm in a period of emotional upheaval. Is that all the oh, I don't care crap? A little adventure. Where are you going? I'm gonna steal a bird from the Russian pigeon mafia. Let's do it. Goes a long way. <laughs> Starring Brooklyn Prince with Kelly Riley and Brian Cox. Life can hurt, but life is sweet. Little Wing, rated PG-13, may be inappropriate for children under 13. Now streaming exclusively on Paramount+. Plus. This episode is brought to you by Paramount+. Plus. Get in, loser! Mean Girls is now streaming on Paramount+. Plus. Join Katie Heron as she meets the plastics and Tina Fey's new twist on the modern classic. Get ready for more of the rumors, backstabbing, and jokes you loved from the original movie with some fetch surprises. Rated PG-13. Wear pink and head to ParamountPlus.com to try it free. This episode is brought to you by Pepsi Wild Cherry. Pepsi Wild Cherry is bursting with delicious cherry flavor and a sweet, crisp taste that gives you more to go wild for. Getting wild may look different these days, but whether it's opting for a solo Friday binge watch or a big night out, everyone can indulge in their wild side with Pepsi Wild Cherry, also available in Zero Sugar. So grab a Pepsi Wild Cherry and get wild. incredibly surreal uh, i remember we did a gig in france and we flew back by learjet to do top of the pops because kaylee had climbed higher in the charts and yeah you just nothing prepares you for that really you know you kind of you feel like you're in duran duran or something you know obviously when you have a major change like that you do have to rebuild the trust to a certain amount we proved to our to our audience that it was this was still something special Hello and welcome to episode 41 of Vintage Rock Pod, the ultimate classic rock podcast that proudly claims that my music is better than yours. I'm Paul Stevenson, thanks as always for hitting play. Now, I'm also delighted to say that if you're a VRP VIP, you'll know about this already, but Vintage Rock Pod is now a proud part of the Pantheon Podcast Network. It's a tremendous network of music podcasts, vast majority being North American ones, that's been lauded by none other than Neil Young and has also very recently worked directly with Roger Daltrey to produce a podcast series about teenage cancer patients called The Real Me. I'm excited and honoured to have been welcomed into the Pantheon Podcast Network, so please check out the other shows in their stable. Also, a quick shout-out to a couple of listeners. A well-done first to Andy Old from Ipswich in England, who won a competition I ran on my VRP VIP newsletter. He joins Mr A. Corbiston from Barrie in Ontario, or Ontario, is it? Canada? Yeah, someone let me know. Uh, who won a previous competition from a few weeks ago. Well done, guys. Uh, thank you also to Emily Quinn, Kevin Williams, Annette Scott, and Kevin Kirchmeier, I think it is, Kirchmeier, for getting in touch this week too. It's great to connect. Now... On to this week's show then. For the past couple of episodes, since I've been back from the summer break at least, we've had two drummers and a keyboard vocalist on the show. Now this week, we've got a guitar supremo. Youdiscovermusic.com put him in the top 25 prog guitarists of all time. Some certainly incredible calibre of guitarists in that list. Now his band are one of the few successful prog bands to come through in the 80s. Although they're best known in the wider community and in North America especially for their big hit single Kaylee, the group have had nine top 10 albums in the UK and 23 top 40 singles too. And they still continue to sell big with their last studio album, released in 2016, reaching number four. I am of course talking about Marillion and my guest is the founding member and ever-present Steve Rothery. 
Now, Marillion are an interesting band in many ways, musically and sonically, obviously, but also in terms of their longevity as well. The history of the band is split into what's known as two distinct parts. There's the Fish era and the Steve Hogarth era. Now, during the Fish era, the band had the commercial hits. He was a big, charismatic frontman, a real focal point. But he left kind of, what, seven, eight years into the journey. Now, Steve took his place and has been with the band for 30 plus years. Now, when a big figure like Fish leaves, it could have been very easy to fall by the wayside, but fans stayed with them, they've embraced Steve, and the hit albums just continued from there. There's obviously some fans that are all about the Fish era, of course, but in all honesty, some of their best material has come since Steve took over, and I'll be honest with you, my favourite album, the Brave album from 1994, is certainly Steve Hogarth. They were also one of the pioneers of the crowdfunding movement as well. They saw the potential, the the opportunity before any other mainstream acts, and they funded their 2001 release, Anarachnophobia, completely through the advanced orders from fans, pushing the boundaries. And when you think of the internet and all that sort of stuff back in 2001, that's pretty incredible. Now, before we hear my chat with Steve, just to say, if this is the first time you've listened to Vintage Rock Pod, then please do go and check out some of the other big interviews from throughout the series. I speak with rock stars of all varieties, mods, punks, prog rockers, hair metal, radio rock, basically all types of rock stars that made it big in the 60s, 70s and 80s. And they all tell some incredible stories. One of Steve Rothery's main influences, and he talks about it, it was uh, Steve Hackett from Genesis, and I interviewed him in episode 13, I think it was, so please go and check that out as well. Some great stories from Steve about his time in Genesis and why he left and, and various other things as well, so definitely well worth checking that out. Right, it's time for us to move on and hear my chat with Marillion's guitar maestro, Steve Rothery. I'm delighted to welcome a man whose band has scored nine top 10 albums in the UK, including a number one and 23 top 40 singles in a career that spanned 40 years. He's a silky guitarist who's inspired many of today's guitar heroes. So it's my absolute pleasure to welcome to Vintage Rock Pod founder and ever-present member of Marillion, Steve Rothery. Hi, Steve. Hi, how are we doing? I'm good, I'm good indeed. Thank you very much. Um, Pleasure to chat with you. We've got one heck of a career to go through as well, so I'm looking forward to hearing your stories cheers thank you yes it's been it's been quite a a long ride so far (laughs) absolutely some journey indeed now i was one of them many of my listeners will be one of them as well you certainly were i'm talking about a school child who wanted to become a musician wanted to be on the stage wanted to play instruments and i I heard an interview with you saying that you had um, shine on your crazy diamond playing on i don't know if it was cassette or on your on your vinyl player and you were saying that's what i want to do and then it's crazy to think of where you've come from from there. I mean, were the likes of Pink Floyd, were they your, your heroes and your inspiration at that time when you were younger? Uh, yeah, I mean, Pink Floyd, Genesis and uh, Camel were the three acts I probably listened to um, the most. Um, but yeah, 15, still at school, uh, I sort of decided that's what I wanted to do with my life, really. And uh, told my career's advisor at school and, and they <laughs> kind of fell off the chair laughing at the, at the idea. Um, but I proved them wrong, so there we go. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely, did indeed. And you went for the guitar in the end. I mean, was there any thoughts of bass being a singer? Did you think of keyboards or drums? Was it always guitar for you? Yeah, the guitar had always had a fascination for me. A friend of mine, uh, when I was about eleven or twelve, had a, a battered acoustic guitar, and I just thought it was just something quite magical about about it. 
Indeed, and so from from picking up that acoustic guitar and playing, as I hear from many people, that fateful advert in the music press, and whether it was Melody Maker or, or something like that, you did the same. I spoke to Steve Hackett; he did the same as many others as well. And you saw an advert for um, a band for an audition for a band called Silmarillion. Silmar- sorry, um, do you remember going down for that audition? I certainly do. Yeah, I, I uh, drove all the way down from Whitby, North Yorkshire, two hundred and fifty miles in my little uh, Renault Five. Uh, braving the M1 for the first time, <laughs> and uh, yeah, no, it was it was quite an experience. I got down there, drove from early in the morning, got down there um, to find that they were all still in bed. Um, <laughs> and you'd driven 250 miles, <laughs> exactly. I've been up since the crack of dawn, but anyway, it went well. It was it was uh, a good audition, and they offered me the gig. And it wasn't really even a band then; it was just a bass player and a drummer. But it was the kind of music I, I wanted to to make. And just digressing slightly, I've got a Renault Five. That was my first car as well. Some interesting journeys in those sorts of cars. Oh, right. yeah, Your yeah. Renault Five had the had the gear change on the dashboard, though. No, it didn't. No, just the regular four gears yeah, on was... the stick. Yeah. Right, yeah, no, mine had that old dash change, which was a, a bit of a weird thing to get used to. But uh, that was a good little car. Um, it, it was fine apart from the fact if it rained and then you finished pushing it. <laughs> yes, I, I remember going up hills in second gear. Yeah, I certainly relate to that. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so from Renault 5, let's talk about Marillion again, shall we? Now, um, from the late 70s, 80s, you're a four-piece and then uh, Fish joined the band. And, and from him auditioning, what were your thoughts on him from, from the start then and, and what he could bring to, to, to the band and help push you guys further? Uh, it was obvious that you know he he would be a great front man. He uh, you know he wrote interesting lyrics. Uh, you know, vocal style very heavily influenced by uh, Peter Gabriel and Peter Hamill and, and John Anderson at that time. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, it was a good fit. Um, you know, and he, he had a lot of charisma uh, and obviously a lot of drive and ambition and self belief. Um, and yeah, it uh, it worked. It certainly did work, because we talk about um, Script for a Jester's Tear, which really put you on the map. 1983, top 10 in the album charts in the UK, a top 20 hit as well within their garden party, uh, and then followed up with more success with Fugazi, which went even higher, top five in the album chart. And although there was the, the hard rock element to it, it was claimed as re- revitalising the prog rock scene as well, because that had kind of been pushed aside, hadn't it, by the likes of punk and new wave. Um, so it kind of showed that there was still an appetite for progressive music done well. Absolutely. I mean, there'd always been, even throughout that uh, punk and new wave period, there'd been um, bands playing prog still. I think Twelfth Night, um, Palace, probably some others as well. Um, but, but I suppose we, we were the first band to really... Um, Worked very hard at it. You know, we toured an awful lot in those days. Um, mm-hmm. And we got to that point where we could sell out the Marquee Club in London without having a deal. And that brought us to the attention of the of the record companies. So we were the first band to sign a major label, uh, to a major label. And, and uh, yeah, that kind of kick-started, I think, a lot of other uh, acts getting signed. Absolutely. And we, we talk about those two albums and something which jumps out immediately is the artwork as well so impactful so eye-catching and um did you guys have a, a big helping hand in in the construction and the, of the artwork for that not really um that was kind of very much down to mark wilkinson uh, working very closely with fish to try and re- re- represent the the characters and situations in some of the lyrics um uh, or you know his take on that um but no, I, I think it gave the band a very strong visual identity for those first three albums. 
Um, and in fact, my favourite piece of, of, of artwork that Mark did was actually the Marcus Boy Hero sleeve, um, which I've got hanging on my wall. Um, <laughs> and I, yeah, I, just, I, I thought that was a, a very powerful and grabbing sort of piece of artwork. Because that was so vital and it was so important, wasn't it? I mean, obviously music's changed and the way we consume music's changed, but back then the artwork was critical. And it was, you know, it gives you the impression as you're browsing through the records that, oh, here's something a bit different. It's a bit quirky. Um, You know, it makes you curious, I think, to see how it sounds. So I think, yeah, hats off to Mark Wilkinson, you know, for creating something that was uh, visually interesting to that degree that uh, I think did help help us, um, you know, get a lot of people's interest. Absolutely. And a lot of people's interest was certainly piqued by Misplaced Childhood, which went on to become a UK number one album. I mean, that's phenomenal. It also went big around the world as well. You got some big hits off that and you were charting around the, the place. I mean, we talked about being young and, and wanting to become professional musicians. But at this point, you, your dreams are coming true. I mean, like I said, top of the pops, hit records, playing the world, supporting Queen in front of over 150,000 people. I mean, yeah. wow, as someone that could only dream of that, how does that feel at that time? Incredibly surreal. Uh, I remember we did a gig in in uh, France and we flew back by Learjet to do top of the pops because Kaylee had gone back up. Climbed higher in the charts, and yeah, you just nothing prepares you for that, really. You know, you kind of you feel like you're in Duran Duran or something. Um, of course, you know it's not really what we're about, so it didn't didn't last. But having said that, I think the impact that Kaylee made and then Misplaced Childhood made is probably one of the reasons that uh, the band's still going. Because when you do get that mainstream exposure, it it stays with people for a long time. Absolutely. And more mainstream exposures are always going to follow, like uh, clutching at straws, sorry, reach number two, another big hit on there as well, Incommunicado. Uh, And then the parting of the ways with Fish as well, drawing the work on the next album. What was your thoughts amongst the band, yourself and and the other members at that point when Fish left? Um, Well, I think we just wanted to carry on. We we had a lot of confidence in the music that we'd we'd written. Uh, There was some very strong musical ideas that surfaced on um, Season's End and Holiday's Neen. Mm-hmm. Um, so there was no question of stopping. We just thought we'd, we'd have to find someone, you know, obviously you can't just replace someone like Fish. He was too important part of the band. But just to try and find someone you can have a, a strong musical chemistry with and who understood the sort of thing that you were trying to do. You know, we auditioned about, I don't know, 50 people, Um and they were either kind of like wanting to be fish or, or or they were just from a more straightforward kind of rock area, so just not at all suitable. Um, but when we heard Steve Hogarth's um, tape of a couple of How We Live songs, you know, we thought immediately, uh, oh, here's someone working in a, in a similar kind of area musically, but with a really interesting uh, and uh, distinctive voice. So you say they're hearing Steve's um, audition tape. I mean... How did that come about? Did he hear that you were looking for, well, he obviously knew that you were looking for a lead singer. Was he just getting in touch and putting his, himself out there? No, it was actually his uh, his publisher who sent the uh, the tape to uh, John Arneson, our manager. Uh, and John played it and, and thought it was interesting. So he, he uh, brought it up to us. Um, and yeah, we were very excited to meet meet Steve and we, we kind of got him down. Um, 
and it went incredibly well. Um, but he didn't jump at the chance. Um, he'd, he'd, uh, he was just about to turn his back on the music business and be a milkman, I think, or a postman. Um, <laughs> but he'd also just had the offer to, because he just played on a, a, an, al- an album, piano and an album by the there. And, and he'd uh, had just had an offer to go and play keyboards with them on tour, which he was thinking about. So, um, yeah, it, it took him a few days to decide, but um, fortunately for all of us, he uh, he made the wise choice. Absolutely. A good decision in the end, and the band just kept excelling from there. The next three albums with Steve all went top ten as well, and the famed Marillion fans, you've got such a strong and loyal fan base. They're all still enjoying what you're putting out and creating as a band. I mean, that must have felt good knowing that obviously such a big character had left the band and Steve had come in, and the fans are still behind you and supporting everything you do. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we have the best fan base of any band in the world. Um, you know, obviously, when you have a major change like that, you you do have to rebuild the trust to a certain amount. But I think we did that with Season's End. Uh, and the response live was always fantastic with Steve for that, the, the first tour. Um, yeah, and we kind of, we, we proved to our, to our audience that it was, this was still something special. And without putting words in Steve's mouth, I mean, how did he find stepping into someone's shoes like that? So such a big character's shoes. Uh, well, we we uh, we knew it was always going to be difficult. So when it came to performing the old fish songs, we let him choose which songs he he felt he could bring his own personality to, um, mm-hmm. without having to impersonate fish in any way, because that would have that would have just been wrong in the circumstances. Um, so because of that, I think it wasn't as difficult as it would otherwise have been. Because we we weren't trying to recreate fish; we were trying to do something interesting that was equally as valid. Absolutely, and, and involved the band as, as bands should anyway. But uh, And I've lost con- uh, kind of track on how many studio albums you've put out. Is it 18 or 19 or something like that? Uh, it depends how you count them. Uh, <laughs> for some people, this next, the next Marillion album will be the 20th. In my head, it's still only the 18th. But, uh, yeah, it's debatable. It depends if you, if you count the uh, Less Is More reimagining album and if you count the uh, the with friends from the orchestra um, albums. So, yeah, it's debatable, like I say. (laughs) Plenty. That's that's the main answer. Um, And still achieving incredible success. We have to touch on uh, 2016's release, uh, Fear. Uh, Fuck everyone and run. Massive success. Went to number four in the UK album chart. I mean, rave reviews. Yeah. At this stage in your career, with with all you've achieved and all you've done, it still must have been an incredible feeling to get that kind of reception. It really was. Um, You don't kind of expect it. I think we'd we'd start to to turn a corner with sounds that can't be made. Uh, but fear, I mean, it just everything came together. I think uh, Steve's lyrics and the kind of rock and roll Nostradamus, really, of uh, imagining how messed up the world is, uh, was going to be. Uh, we couldn't even imagine, really. But, uh, but yeah, no, incredibly important album for us, I think. And then, you know, that tour and the subsequent um, Royal Albert Hall show that we filmed, uh, again, that's like the best live performance of us I think we've we've ever managed to capture. And you mentioned that Royal Albert Hall performance. I mean, that sold out in four minutes. That's that, that's incredible. Yeah, yeah, and I, it was, and it was just such a wonderful uh, evening, you know, to walk on that stage and feel that energy and passion and love from an audience. Um, you, you just knew you couldn't fail. You know, they would carry you along, uh, and it was, yeah. 
I think the whole production and the lights mm-hmm. and, and the way our, our lighting designer used the lights within that venue. Um, I've never seen anything that looked as good there, and I've seen a lot of bands there. Absolutely. And, and speaking of uh, being on stage, you've got a tour that you're about to embark on, haven't you? The Light at the End of the Tunnel tour. Um, there's dates in Europe, but right yes. across the UK as well. I mean, I'll list them. It's Hull, Edinburgh, Cardiff, Manchester, Cambridge, Birmingham, Liverpool, Bath or Bath, if you're from down south. And two shows at the Eventim Apollo Hammersmith as well. There's one pretty much near everybody, really. So what can fans expect from this tour then, Steve? Well, I think it's going to be a celebration that we're all still alive, apart from anything else. <laughs> um, yeah. <laughs> I think every night it's going to be, hence the name. Yeah, it's going to be quite emotional. I think, and uh, I think there's a sort of catharsis in, in in seeing some of your you know favorite bands perform live when you've been through that. Um, so yeah, I expect it to be very very special. Um, we're going to be playing a selection of of, of material. We think it's going to going to reflect that really. That's going to be a celebration uh, for us all. Um, I mean, I'm lucky. I, I did a, um, a concert just over a month ago in in, uh, in Poland, in Gdansk. Um, but before that, it was nearly two years since I'd, I'd, I'd played live. And that's a strange feeling when you've spent the last 42 years of your life touring. Absolutely. And you touched on uh, playing in Europe there. I mean, you have such a, a big following in Europe as well. Do you enjoy going out there and playing to the fans? Absolutely. Yeah, no, we have a great, great uh, following uh, in in a lot of Europe, uh, and this was a solo show with my solo band. But uh, but yeah, we do. We, we have a million weekends next year, um, pretty much all around the globe. Uh, so yeah, no, we 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 do really well in 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 a very many corners of the world. <laughs> and uh, talking about the light at the end of the tunnel tour specifically, um, is this is the ticket still available? What's the best way to get hold of them? Uh, I think so. Yeah, I think that there are some some tickets still available. I think uh, via the usual outlets. Um, yeah, I think there's links from the Marillion.com uh, page. Uh, yeah, so it's definitely it's definitely one to make it if you can because it, it, it's going to be, like I say, quite emotional, I think. Absolutely. And um, the, just a quick talk on the, the plans for the new album. I know that the, there's certainly plans in place for it and there's a release maybe early next year or something. Can you give us any details on that? Yeah, it depends. I mean, the strange thing is we, you know, we're going to be probably finished with the music by the end of this month, but um, the industry is just needs so much lead time these days for the like, manufacturing vinyl. Mm-hmm. Apparently it's under some global cardboard shortage, which is uh, <laughs> impacting things. So it's probably not going to come out till February or March of next year. And what can we expect musically from, from the? Oh, how can you describe it? Very rich, um, Lyrically, uh, you know, although Steve didn't want to write about the, the pandemic, I think that's kind of seeped seeped in in the uh, some of the themes for the record. Uh, but but it's quite powerful, quite uplifting, um, and uh, yeah, I think people are going to love it. And was there much going on during lockdown? Were you passing files around, or had it been written prior to that, or was it after or during? <clears throat> Well, we did some writing before and uh, the first part of the pandemic, we were still working together. And then uh, I made the decision to shield um, and then all the band made the decision to, you know, it was it was a law for, for those however many months that we weren't allowed to work together. So, yeah, you can still work at home, you know, with, with technology these days. Um, I have a studio at home anyway, so I would do some work on, on some things there. Um, but, yeah, I mean... You could say it's been quite a few years since the Fear album, but you know, 
with the best part of two years of a pandemic, I think we've done pretty well. Brilliant. Well, it's been an absolute pleasure chatting with you, Steve. I wish you all the best for the future. Look forward to the album and yes. I hope the tour is an absolute success for you. Good to speak to you. Cheers. Thanks. Bye. There you go, Steve Rothery from Marillion there. They are definitely a band that bring music to life. Live, they are an incredible sonic experience. And although it's not the same if you can't make it to their live tour, especially this brand new one, definitely check out their live albums. There's plenty of them so you can get a real feel for the brilliant musicianship within that band. Right on Vintage Rock Pod, it's time for my top fives. Now, this is where I give you my five favourite songs from the artist I've just interviewed on the show. This is my personal choice. I don't claim it to be the definitive list. It's not fan-led. It's very subjective. And hopefully, it maybe opens some doors for anyone who may not be overly familiar with the group in question. So here we go. My favourite five songs from Marillion, according to Vintage Rock Pod. At five is a track from the Fugazi album from 1984. It's a revenge porn type CD subject matter 30 years ahead of its time. It's got a driving riff to open, an almost somber kind of funereal middle bit and a rousing ending. Fish once said it's probably his favourite song from his time in the band. And number five is Incubus. Number four is from probably my favourite Marillion record, 1994's Brave. It starts slow, but I love the soaring guitars in this song and Steve Hogarth's pained, strained vocals too. And number four is The Great Escape. Number three is another Fish-era song, lead track from the Clutching at Straws album from 1987. It's a more upbeat-sounding song, this one, even if the subject matter involves alcoholism. It was the band's third top ten hit in the UK, and number three is Incommunicado. Number two is from their much-heralded 2004 record, Marbles. Now, this track is one of their real gems, a 12-minute journey, the likes of which Marillion do so well. Again, it opens with a delicate pace and ends in a visceral wall of sound. Steve Rothery's guitar is right on the edge. He has this ability to do just the right amount, never too much. It's become a staple of their live show since, and rightly so. And number two is Neverland. And at number one, for me, is perhaps a song that doesn't get as much credit as others. It's never mentioned that often with the top lists, but I love it. Again, taken from the Brave album, but it's darker sound. This track opens with a great guitar lick, then the meaty drums kick in. Steve Rothery's guitar work and the solos are hard and edgy, and that's probably why it's always stood out for me. The number one Marillion song, according to Vintage Rock Pod, is Alone Again in the Lap of Luxury. There you go, my favourite five songs from Marillion. As ever, I'd love to hear your thoughts on this list. Where do you agree? Where do you disagree? 
drop me an email, vintagerockpod at gmail.com. Quick thank you to Mike Norris, who got in touch last week to offer two songs he felt should have made the ELO top five from the previous episode. He said, uh, Confusion and The Diary of Horace Wimp. Two great songs there. Judy Hoffman offered a completely different set of songs with Ticket to the Moon, Telephone Line and Strange Magic being her top three, while Dan Hart said Turn to Stone was his favourite ELO song. Just goes to show the depth of the tracks in ELO's back catalogue are incredible when not one of those songs were off my list of my top five. And also a big thanks to uh, Patrick Brashear for agreeing with me on Don't Bring Me Down as being his favourite ELO song too. A uh, quick shout out to my VRP VIPs. They're all signed up to receive a newsletter that lands in their inbox at the very most once a week. It's full of info about the episodes before they get released. There's chances to win things and extra little stories from the world of Vintage Rock Pod 2. It's completely free. If you want to be involved, just go to my website, vintagerockpod.com. Sign up using the form on the first page. I promise your information will not be sold. It won't be passed to anyone else. I'll not spam you. You are completely safe, I promise. And please check out Vintage Rock Pod on the social media channels as well. Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. It's where I share short videos and clips and things like that. There's also a YouTube channel as well where I post some of the video interviews on there for you. Just search for Vintage Rock Pod on all those platforms and you'll be able to find me. Give me a like, a follow, a subscribe, say hello. It would be great to hear from you. And also, if you listen on Apple or iTunes or that sort of thing, leave me a, a little rating and a review as well. It'd be lovely to hear from you. And those sorts of things always help with the rankings too. Well, that's it for this week's show then. I've got more big name guests to follow with a Rock and Roll Hall of Famer next week. Yes with stories about Jimi Hendrix, plus very many more as well. Now, if this is the first time you've uh, listened, then please remember to follow or subscribe so you don't miss any of the episodes on the series. It's well worth listening to. Until the next episode, then remember, if you come across anyone who isn't a fan of rock, just tell them, my music is better than yours. Take care. achieve the American dream. The big house, the happy family, the money. 911, what's your emergency? Would you put in the hours? Would you take a big swing? What's the problem? What's the problem? Would you lie? Would you cheat? Would I shop? Would I shop? Would you kill? Yes. <laughs> My mom and dad. My mom and my dad. From Airship. The studio behind American Scandal comes a new true crime history podcast. I'm Jeremy Schwartz, and I'll be taking you inside the minds of some of our most notorious felons and outlaws, exploring the dark side of the American dream. In my new show, American Criminal, you'll meet the picture-perfect brothers who killed their parents, the thief who stole babies, the crypto king who siphoned off billions and plenty more. From assassins and gangsters to killers and con artists, whatever the case, whoever the criminal, you don't know the full story until now. Don't miss the debut season of American Criminal, The Menendez Brothers, beginning February 29th. Listen wherever you get your podcasts or to get early ad-free access to the entire season first, plus hundreds of other ad-free history podcast episodes, subscribe at intohistory.com.